This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Always a delight to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who made his mark in football and how. He did just about everything there was to do in the game. A best and fairest winner, a premiership player, a Hall of Fame inductee, and he's known simply by one nickname, Kuda. Anthony Kudafidis, welcome. Thanks very much, Pete. Good to be here. Good to see you, mate. How are you? Very good. I keep myself busy with three kids running around crazily, but uh, enjoying life. How are the kids? Are they showing any aptitude? Do they want to uh, follow in Dad's footsteps at all? My oldest boy, Jamie's never liked footy, so he's a basketballer. My daughter, well, now she enjoys footy. My wife never really liked footy, so I had a third one, Pete. Luckily, I made him sleep with a football, and he <laughs> loves footy. So I've got one of the three, and he, uh, I don't put any pressure on him because I was a little, I'll be honest, Pete, when my oldest boy, Jamie, didn't really like footy, I was a little bit shocked because I fought mum and dad to play this game and they didn't want me to play, so I automatically thought that he would just, you know, enjoy and love footy, and he didn't, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm just a father and I just want him to be happy, and he's found his love and thrill for basketball, so all I could do is really support him, but you know, the little boy, Lucas, he'll say to me, I ask him, you know, what's your favourite basketball or football, and he goes, Dad, you know, it's footy, so he loves footy, so it's really good, it's good because everyone's different. What about Jamie, is he tall and athletic like you? Now, believe it or not, Peter, um, he's not. He wasn't blessed, like, really athletically at all. Um, but he's come leaps and bounds, to my surprise. I mean, he's only 15. He's almost my height, and he's slam dunking. I, I Believe me, when he was 7 or 8 or 10, if you had have asked me, I said he'll never, ever be able to do it. So I don't know what's happened. Um, and uh, he's really started to trim down a little. So he always carried that little bit of weight. And so, did, so does my little boy, Lucas, whereas my daughter's got abs and, you know, long legs and very athletic looking. So he's got something about him. I'm not sure what it is, Pete, but he's really thriving on his basketball and I'm enjoying because I get to train with him too, Pete. Although I've got a few aches and pains, he enjoys coming to the gym with me on school holidays and I, and I train with him. And to me, that's a thrill because I never thought there would ever come a time when I'll be training my boy and teaching him what to do and helping him out with his sporting activities. Did you play a lot of basketball when you were a kid, Cooter? Only socially. I never played it in uh, competition-wise. I mean, I, I guess, you know, at school I was always good at it because, you know, being an athletic background, I could just run and jump and do all those sort of things that the other kids couldn't do. But I always loved the game. But my real love was really the passion was athletics and footy. And I really didn't have time to do anything else because in, in the winter I played footy in the summer I did athletics. You're a brilliant hurdler. You're a very good high jumper. 
When you dreamed of sporting glory when you were a kid, mm-hmm. did you dream of the Olympic Games? 100% I did. I dreamed of both AFL or VFL back then or, or Olympic Games. I was lucky. I had a terrific career. And when I look back and Pete, to think that I never really did any pre-season of any of the sports, whether it was football or athletics. So I'd finish footy season. Have, I basically gave myself two weeks off and then started athletics training. And to be, you know, Australian champ there at one stage in the high jump until Tim Forsyth came along. And then by the end of it, be Australian champion 110-metre hurdler with an Australian record. Was uh, when I look back now, I thought, wow, you know, I didn't probably appreciate it when I uh, when I did it as a junior, and uh, I won many multi events. So if anything, if I was going to rep- represent Australia at the Olympics, it would have been maybe possibly hurdles, if not maybe decathlon. And I guess with a, f- a couple of two or three pre seasons behind me, who knows what I could have done. But at the end of the day, I signed my contract with the Carlton Football Club, and uh, I certainly don't have any regrets because of the athletes that I competed with back in my day. Jai Tarima was one. I used to mm. race him in the hurdles and beat him, but, but he's a phenomenal long jumper who went on to win the silver medal at the uh, Sydney Olympic Games, and we competed and battled many times. And uh, there was Kyle Vanderkype, who was two years older than myself, a phenomenal athlete, just an incredible athlete. I watched him as a young kid all the way through, dedicated to his sport to, to get to an Olympic final and finish seventh. I think he still currently holds the Australian record for the 110-metre hurdles. And then uh, Tim Forsyth, who went on to win a bronze medal at the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games, he was second-best junior high jumper in the world. And I think his best was 234 or 236. So just phenomenal athletes, uh, you know, when I look back and competing against them. It's funny, as a junior, I represent... I competed for Keon Park. I don't know if you remember, because you, you follow athletics. And Gary yeah. Honey came from there. Yeah. Silver medalist, long jump, 1984, behind the great... Carl, Carl Lewis, Lewis yes. yes. And so we only had a few athletes. We might have had 10. So I had to do seven events every week. So I was just used to getting out there and doing all the events. When clubs like Doncaster had like a huge amount of athletes, they had athletes for specific events. So I'd go from the high jump, go and sprint to 100, come back to the high jump, jump and go to the shop put and come back and do the high jump and finish that way. But we had a phenomenal, like just a group of youngsters that came up through the Layla Thomastown area, the northern suburbs, and we were probably renowned as maybe the best team in Victoria so we won a few championships as the best team in Victoria and you know as I said I did seven events my brother would do five you know someone else would do four and it was just unbelievable era for us to grow up in that sort of uh, atmosphere you know and uh, environment I should say and my you know my son Jamie that's probably what he lacks right now you know what I mean just friends around you that we just went to battle every single day to get ourselves better as mates but we were competitive you know (laughs) we all got angry did we if we lost yeah. and it just got us better and so that's why I was very very lucky that I had a handful of good mates around me that love sport and we just went out there every day to get ourselves better so how did footy eventually win out over athletics for you Kuda? I think the club sport I knew then you know it was the Carlton Football Club to me it was prestigious it was powerful it was successful um, playing with teammates was fun I, I guess I looked, and I hope I don't say this in the wrong way, but, you know, I, I looked at athletics and there was, you know, people getting caught on drugs and all that. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, do I need to, you know, be on drugs if I'm going to be a world champion? I was a little bit unsure, you know, how could I have done this naturally to get there and become a world champ? I just looked at footy and thought, you know what, I think it's a better way for me uh to, to make a career out of a sport I'd be able to live at home you know what I mean with mum and dad and um, and, and my brothers Paul and Christian so 
I chose the, the team sport over the, the individual sport, and it was a really tough decision for me. It was hard for me to say goodbye to athletics. My first football preseason, I remember on the first Saturday training, I didn't even tell the club. I just turned up to the athletics carnival like I did every other year. But I think my high jump went from about two metres eight to about a metre eighty because we were doing eight-kilometre runs, ten-kilometre runs, and the body just wasn't used to it. So things had changed. So I, I think it was the team sport, and Cohen offered me a three-year contract, Pete. So it was really one or the other. They were two great ch- dreams, but I knew athletics didn't really have much to offer for me. You had a great grounding uh, before you burst onto the scene and became the superstar that you were. You yeah. played a lot of under-19s football, a lot of reserves footy, so that stood you in good stead by the time you got up to the big time. It really did, Pete. I mean, at 14, I got the letter from the Carlton Football Club, mad Collingwood supporter. I was in the Carlton zone. I played two years under-15s in their scholarship development squad. I made the Victorian team. I was the only Carlton player then to make the Victorian team. And I dare say, out of all the under-15s that I played with, no one went on to play senior footy also. But from there, under-19s, um, <clears throat> I put priority was my study over training only because I feared the coach Ross Henshaw and uh, didn't enjoy the training because they were big boys and I was this skinny you know athletic kid so I got belted around a little and pretended I was studying half the time Pete not to go to training <laughs> so I played two years under under 19s at Carlton I played uh, Victorian Metropolitan uh, the Till Cup where I made the All-Australian team at centre-half back and uh, yeah, then I went on to play reserve. So I played 50 reserve games, Peter. It's a difficult three and a half years for me. Why was that? Uh, I never really had... I don't know if the coaches really believed in me, Pete. I'm not sure. I was a bit of a... I, I looked laconic like I wasn't trying, but I was. Um, I was a little bit of a lazy kid, so Parker maybe, you know, wasn't too pleased with the way that I was because everything sort of came a little bit natural for me. Maybe I didn't really have to train as hard as what I should have trained. Um, and mentally, it was it was tough for me because I just felt like I wasn't given a go. And uh, I played in every position, Pete, so I was really unsettled. I wasn't sure where they really wanted to play me. At uh, 1992, I played a fullback in the reserves, and I won a best and fairest from fullback. But then, you know, you go and play senior footy at half forward flank, then you're in the forward pocket, then you're at back pockets in a half-back flank, you're sent up back. And I just didn't know where I was. And uh, in 1994, I got dropped for a couple of games halfway through the season. I thought that was the end of my career. And um, luckily, two weeks later, I went to see a sports psychologist. His name was Anthony Stewart and the club referred me to him. I said, whatever you want me to do, I'm, I'm keen to play senior footy. I want to make the most of my career. And um, I don't know, you taught me these words, I can, I will, you just watch me. And I used to highlight them in my diary every every day. And uh, two weeks later, Parko played me on the wing. I don't know if it was his decision or someone else's. And uh, I never looked back from there. I was in the best plays, I think, pretty much every week, except for maybe the last final that we played. And look, I had terrific support. You know, my first reserves coach, Rod Ashman, had belief in me. I'm just not sure if the match committee did. You know, in 1993, I was emergency, and I watched in the grandstands as the boys played in a grand final. And then I think I was best player almost every week in the reserves, but I just never got their opportunity. There was one game I spoke on the Mike Sheen show last year, and it's not to, to, to say anything about Parker. I love Parker. He's like a father figure to me now, so I'm not here to do anything wrong by him. But that's how we, you know, coaching was back then. But... One game against North Melbourne, I started on the bench. McKay came off with the blood rule, and I literally ran on. I just ran on, Pete. The runner just came straight after me and said, Parker, I want to know if you want to play today. And I was was just almost in tears on the MCG, thinking, what do I have to do to, you know, to please this guy? And, um, you know, I was very emotional. I don't think I got 
Uh, I don't think I was on the ground for the rest of the game and then dropped to the reserve. So mentally, you can imagine what how hard that would have been, Pete. Now, if it wasn't for the support of mum and dad and my brothers, uh, and, you know, I had a couple of great mates, Sash, I, I'm not sure how I could have gone through it. And uh, luckily, I had that support. Mum and dad were... And my brothers and my mate Sash were, like, just had that belief that I could be the best player, um, you know, in the competition always. And uh, so it was difficult times, but certainly worth the heartache and pain to push through the three and a half years, Pete, because um, everything came after that. Mm, but but it's a difficult time, not only as a footballer, but that affects your life. It affects your day-to-day life. When you wake up each morning, did, did it seem that it was all a bit too hard at that mm. stage? Oh, I did many times, Pete. I wondered whether you know, to go on or whether I quit. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever thought I'd quit. I just kept turning up, I guess. And that was the key to it. Just try to have that belief. There was a couple of games I reckon the reserves I didn't even bother trying, Pete, because I just thought, no matter what I do here, they're not going to be happy anyway. And it wasn't a good uh, mental thing that, to do, you know what I mean? I should not have done it, but I did. How was that received by your teammates, Scooter? Because footy clubs are notorious for wanting everybody to give everything they've got out there. Did your teammates rag on you when you got to the stage where you just wandered around and you couldn't care? I can't remember, <laughs> in honesty. Um, I know it was a tough environment when I walked in. As leaders, they pushed us really hard, which was good. I was a little bit shocked to the system too. When, you're old, when your older teammates, the leaders at the footy club, are you know, giving it to you for not trying hard enough. So I learned very quickly if I wanted to be successful what I needed to do. I can't recall their thoughts towards me. I know a lot of them thought you know, that I had a lot of ability. At the end of the day, I always felt like Parker probably didn't really understand what he had and probably didn't know how to play me in in the way that I could really play football. And, uh, you know, it's nothing to disrespect Parker because I love him, as I said before. But, um, yeah, it was a a very difficult time for me, Pete. And everyone sort of had that perception that I was more of an athlete than a footballer. But how do you make the Victorian team under-15s? How do you make the All-Australian team under-17s if you're not a footballer? Because I've seen some phenomenal athletes walk into the game athletically gifted but not be able to find that ball and play the game so I, I feel like I could always play and whenever there was a big game even in juniors I always stood up and when the game was on the line I'd always be the one to mm-hmm. stand up and uh, do something special so it was just a matter of time I guess Pete before they finally seen it when they played me on the wing and finally I was settled to just play the way that I could play. And a lot of that was heading towards the decorated career that you had. Kuda will take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, well, 95, that season in 95 and some of the other magnificent things you were able to do in your career. Anthony Kudafidis, Kuda is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Kuda after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Oh, it's been like old times in the break, just uh, sitting here having a chat with Cooter. Anthony Cooterfides is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Just looking back on a few photos uh, during the break, Cooter. Daly Thompson, yes. Seb Coe, yeah. Linford Christie. Yeah, seeing oh, you mention some great. of those great athletic names. Love them. Anyway, back to footy. Uh, 95, of course, is the season that is so fondly remembered by Carlton supporters. They need to have a good memory, mm. the way things are going at the moment. But that 95 season, you were part of an incredible team. It really was, Pete. I mean, I was 22 years of age. I'd struggled for three and a half years to cement my position in the footy team. 94 was the standout year for me where I broke out. But 95 was the year I'll never, ever forget. Um, to go through that season only losing two games for the entire year, which was a, an AFL record back then until Essendon beat us in year 2000. 
thousand. Um, I think the preseason. A lot of people were saying they were too old and too slow. I don't even think we want even a preseason game, Pete. But. Anthony Shewer, the sports psychologist that helped me in 94, got employed by the club in 95. And he said to Parker, you've got some tremendous leaders here. Why don't you just let them lead a little bit more instead of you, you know, yourself doing all the work. And I remember we all broke up forwards over there, mids here, backs there, and we all came up with a game plan. which was very similar to Parko's, but I guess because it came from us, we had that belief about it. And we knew there was a few aging superstars in our team. You know, Sticks was getting a little bit older, Justin Madden, you know, Sporting, I mean, Craig Bradley, but we didn't think he was going to go on for another 10 years. But, <laughs> uh, Greg Williams, you know, these sort of absolute superstars that we had in the team. And so we knew there was only a little window of opportunity. We got to the grand final in 93. In 94, we were on top of the ladder, round 21. We lost the last game to, to Essen and finished second on the ladder. And we went out in straight sets in 94 finals. So 95 was really a remarkable year. The first final against Brisbane Bears, they were back then. I was having yeah. to think about it. It was a really close close game. In three-quarter time, it was, it was, it was a struggle. And uh, I think Sticks kicked the first goal in the last quarter. I kicked the next three. And then we went on to win by about only 14 or 16 points. I think it was 13 points. 13 points. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I struggled. Chris Scott was tagging me, and he did a terrific job. And then the last quarter, Parker goes and going to full forward. And luckily, you know, Sticks kicked it, and I kicked the next three. That sort of gave us that little bit, you know, of, of uh, uh, an, an edge. And uh, that, that was it. So after we lost those two, which was St. Kilda and Sydney, right, the two yep. bottom teams, I remember we sat in the room. I thought our year was over. We went to sit there, pick who we wanted in the team. You know, there was a bit of soul searching at that time. And then we played Hawthorne that next week, and I think we won by about 90, I don't know, 100, whatever. We just absolutely murdered, annihilated Hawthorne. Then we never looked back. So even at halftime, well, I think it was against Adelaide. We might have been behind Adelaide. We just knew deep down within ourselves that we'd just go out there and win the game, and that's what we did. And So it was a bit of a shock. I must admit that Brisbane game was a little bit of a shock. It was like, oh, okay, we lost 93, 94. We went out in straight sets. So we finished second. We played Melbourne, who was seventh, and we lost to them in 94. Mm. Then we played Geelong, who had about six of their star plays out, and we lost, got thrashed. Something could have happened again. But then we had a week off, and then we came up against North Melbourne, who were extremely tough to play against under Dennis Pagan. And you belted them. We belted them by about 10 or 11 goals. Then we got the grand final, and I think Geelong was still favourites to win. As far as I remember, I remember the Geelong boys having their dark sunglasses on and we're like, have a look at them, you know, they, they've got ahead of themselves already. It was just something for us to be able to brag over, over Geelong and we went out and like, let's be honest, by halftime the game was over, although we didn't, I didn't believe it, you know what I mean? Like it's still another half a game, anything can happen, but last quarter, halfway through, we were up by about 80 odd points and I looked around the MCG and thought, wow, I'm about to be a premiership player here for the Carlton Football Club. I could not believe it, Pete. I always thought grand finals and premierships were almost surreal. You know, I had a dream to play, but to go on and win a premiership, well, that was another story. So there it was, and the sign went, oh, I'd, I'd never been so happy. I said it on Mike Sheen's show last year that it was the greatest day of my life. You know, I got married and I love my kids. I'd never trade them for that premiership, but if I'm going to be selfish as a young kid, I never dreamt of having kids. I dreamt of being an Olympian or playing footy. And that premiership, for all the heartache and pain that I went through, for all the emotions, the times that are the self-doubt and thinking maybe I'll never make it and whatever, it was it was worth it for this one day in September that I got to experience as a 22-year-old. And, uh, 
you know, Ange, Christo and I were basically kings of the town. We all were, basically, back then. And, and footy was such a religion back then. And everyone knew footballers. And so, you know, we celebrated after that for five weeks. So I put on about eight kilos. <laughs> I, uh, I went from 95 to 103 by the time I got home. But all the boys did. You know, I think we celebrated that hard, maybe too hard. And if we didn't, we may have gone on to win maybe another premiership, which we never did. But I'd, I would never turn back the time for the celebrations that we had after after that victory. So you have a season like that. You win 23 of 25 games. You're clearly the dominant team in the competition. That celebration happens. And whilst that celebration was going on, you must have had in the back of your mind the fact that this is going to happen again. This 100%. team is too good that we're not going to win another flag. 100%. And it just didn't work out that way. No, we had decades of success. I remember walking into the, uh, the, the corridors of the Carlton Football Club for the first time and seen Jack Elliott and uh I, you know, I was in awe of Jack, and uh, he had this thing power about him. But he set the standard. Basically, he told everyone, you know, if you want to re- be remembered here at the Carlton Football Club, you've got to win premierships. And we were struggling back then in '91 when I first walked through, and Parko came back again. And um, yeah, I, I really believed it was all about premierships, Pete. So when we won that, I, I thought I was going to win another two or three. Really, you know, not thinking too hard about it, but I just thought the club that we were, for the team that we had that we'd go on and win another one. And Jack always said we never rebuild a Carlton, which was in his reign. We never did. And uh, unfortunately, we you know, we got there in 99, which we really didn't deserve to get there in 99 because Essendon were a better team than us. But we got there. In two, year 2000, we won 13 games in a row before we lost to the Bulldogs and then played against Essendon, who were undefeated in front of 90-odd thousand people around 20. Unfortunately, I got injured, Brattles got injured, and we just lost by about 20 points. But who knows what we could have done in year 2000 and 2001 was another up-and-down year. But we thrashed Adelaide in the first week of the final. The next week against Richmond, I did my knee, and I think Soss might have done his hamstring or whatever, and then we're pretty much done and dusted. And that was probably the last glory days, I guess, on the Carlton Football Club. Can I go back to 99? Yep. And the preliminary final it was actually on the day of the state election. Yeah. I remember a famous quote from our late great friend Drew Morfitt, who said at one stage, well, if Carlton can beat Essendon, then maybe Canada will get kicked out. Anything could happen. Wow. And that night he did wow. against the odds and Steve Brax got in. But that 99 prelim is part of folklore. They say that it's one of the greatest quarters ever played by a single player, you, yeah. in that prelim. What are your memories of that last quarter? <sighs> Three-quarter time, Pete, we went to the huddle. Essendon only played one good quarter, and that was in the third quarter, and they got in front of us. We played unbelievable our first half. We played out of ourselves. I remember going into the huddle thinking, please put me in the middle. And uh, I, never got, <laughs> I never got that call. But believe it or not, Pete, I don't know how this happened. I reckon... Uh, about a minute into the last quarter, the runner came out and said, Cootie, you're in the middle. I couldn't believe it. And so I just remember running around. I remember Murph having the ball at half-forward flank, and I was sprinting like a madman, thinking he's going to kick it before he sees me. But he must have seen me. And uh, from a distance, I don't know how. And I just seen him kick that ball, and I just ran as hard as I could. And fr- I know Fraser Brown was in, I think, Sean Wellman. Or, and uh, I, I just jumped and you know landed in my hands, and you know I kicked that goal then. The crowd went crazy. And then... You know, being in the middle, you know, I had a real good feel that day, Pete. Um, I could read the ball. I was marking well, getting, a, you know, a lot of touches out of back pocket, basically. So when I got thrown in the middle, I could just read it off the ruck and everything. It was just one of those days that everything just fell my way. And uh, I remember that big mark in, in the forward pocket and uh, kicking that second goal that I kicked. And 
what a classic court it was. And uh, is that uh, the best quarter you ever played? Oh, look, I, I, I'll always go back to the grand final for myself as a quarter. No, I think I played better quarters, I think. But in, for the occasion, for the big occasion it was, we were underdogs and really should not have been this. And for the circumstances, no, I, I'd never played a better quarter than that. I remember Mark McCurry getting the ball and he was always a threat to us. He was one guy we always pinpointed. He was dangerous, Mark McCurry. And I reckon nine times out of ten, he would have kicked that goal and he missed it. And uh, uh, Dean Wallace, you know, you know, everyone sort of gives it to Dean going, well, oh, you should have just kicked it. Well, you know what? He did the right thing, but it was just mad dog Fraser Brown yeah. that he ran into. That him. tackle. Yeah, that tackle. Yeah. And that was it. And I uh, know oh, the siren went. I, I, The supporters just, I'd never seen him go so crazy. There was this. Incredible energy after the game. I had so many uh, messages left on my phone, which was really unusual then, Pete. I know nowadays it's not, but I had something like 16 messages left on my phone, which, you know, back then you were lucky to get one. And, you know, Essen supporters were crying and they wanted to kill me. And Cohen supporters were just like cheering. So tears from both supporters, cheers from the loss of the Essen supporters and cheers of tears from the Carlton supporters because of how happy they were. And uh, I think out of all the premierships that the Carlton Football Club won, I dare say this, apart from them, this will probably go down as a game that they'll never, ever forget. And it gets replayed all the time. And it, uh, in my memory too, I know uh, I'll, never, <laughs> I'll never forget people. The day I retired, and uh, SCN, you know, had all these things going on. And I think majority, 90% of the time, was just talking about either the West Coast Eagles game when I took the 18 marks or, yeah. or was the Essendon prelim final. Do you reckon all of that description points me in one direction, and that is that maybe you played your grand final in the preliminary final? Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think so. I think we weren't quite ready in North Melbourne. Weren't. And not to say that they were anything great. I don't think we had the same sort of scoring opportunities as them, but... In hindsight, I wish I had started in the middle. I think the, the the coaches were unsure. Do we start him in the middle or do we start him down back, you know, to like get the game sort of under wraps a little and then throw him in the middle? In hindsight, I would have loved to have played in the middle from the start. But look, North Melbourne, I think we're always going to be too good. No, they're just a little bit too disciplined. They lost the year before in the grand final and we were a little bit like maybe in shock going, are we really in a grand final? So we probably weren't as ready as what North Melbourne were, and they, they certainly deserved to win the grand final that year. It was a remarkable era for the football club, and who would have thought, as we said, that the drought would last for so long with Carlton? I'll get your thoughts on why that might be the case when we come back on the other side of the break. Anthony Kudafidis, Kuda is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. The great Cooter, Anthony Cooterfides, is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What do you reckon your best year as a collective was at the Blues, Cooter? I would have been 2000. I think my, under, my 99 season was a little bit underrated, Peter. I played at centre back and pretty much beat everyone, except for probably Matty Richardson, who I always said he was my toughest opponent. I felt like he was more athletic than me. And so in, with other players, I could play one-on-one with him. But with Rich, I just couldn't keep up with him. So I think my 99 season was underrated for the way that I played. And I was getting a lot of possessions from centre-half back. And that's when the club started playing, starting me at centre-half back and then playing me into the midfield. And I finished the game with 30-odd touch and things like that. But year 2000, no doubt, I strung together, I don't know how many best on grounds, the umpires didn't think that, but all the media people in the, in the papers uh, thought I maybe 13 or 14, I don't know, best on grounds 
in a row. And you still polled okay in the Brownlow, though, didn't you? 19. Yeah. Oh, not for the year. I don't think. <laughs> they give the votes away nowadays. But Did you turn up that night thinking you were going to win the Brownlow? I was favourite. Oh, you just, you're never sure, you know what I mean, Pete? I took mum along that night, too, to, to uh, you know, proud mum. Obviously, I just wanted to, to experience a Brownlow medal night also. But in the back of my head, I thought I had a great opportunity because of the season I had. But, um, you know, it didn't pan out that way. Some of the games that I thought... I may have got at least one vote. I didn't get votes. Or some games I thought definitely three here got one. You know what I mean? So mm. it was just the way. When you look at the games that I got three votes for, I almost had 40 possessions, you know, and taken 14 marks and just had to just play out of myself to really get three possessions. And others, you feel like sometimes you just get three just for turning up. But that's the way it goes. And, uh, you know, I think at least I won the Most Valuable Player Award that year, which was a really nice honour for me, an individual award. And 2001 was another... Great year, and I thought it was a little bit underrated also by uh, maybe the media too. So, but you won the best and fairest that year, didn't you? Two thousand and one. Yeah, that was my first one. Yeah, because uh, even you said the umpires didn't recognise it. Well, even the people within the club didn't recognise it because you didn't win the best and fairest in two thousand. Yeah, well, I missed I missed five games for the for the club. I mean, three games in the AFL season, so I missed um, round twenty. I played, but I did my knee. Round twenty one and twenty two, I didn't play, so I missed three of the AFL games. But then the club went on to play two more weeks of the finals so I didn't get any votes obviously for those two weeks and finished well it was equal first and I finished second or third basically so I finished third that year uh, I guess if I had have played those games I would you know at that time there with the club best and first I was I would have been in the lead so uh, I miss five, when you miss five games for the club it's, it's difficult then to go on and, and win a best and fairest so yeah that was my first one Pete and I think I came second in 99 because I missed last five games with a knee injury so I finished second in 99 third in year 2000 and finally won it in 01 and that was my first first one so it was really difficult to win best and fairest back then so it was a real big thrill for me and then Cooter there was an era at the club where it was severely impacted by what took place, the the salary cap and the alleged brown paper bags and all of the penalties that were put on the, put on the football club, it had a big effect and it's probably to a degree still being felt to this day. I find it hard to believe, Pete, I don't believe it is. Um, you know, we missed out on two draft picks, great players, but I don't think the two would have made a team and changed the circumstances of being last on the ladder to maybe even getting close to the finals. Not two players and young players and, uh, you know, one, I guess, um, started playing, you know, really good footy quicker than the other and they weren't certainly weren't, you know, great players from day one and... Uh, um, you know, it was just a change of leadership, Pete. It was completely different to what I was used to. I walked in with his power, and I think Jack was the greatest president of that football club by far. And people, a lot of people don't have that belief about him because of what was portrayed by the new board that came in to make him out like as if he was the, the, the enemy of the club. He was the greatest president. He was a father figure. He united that club. We were, we were family, and he created that. And he loved the players and protected us. And then, of course, we got the new board that were the complete opposite, wouldn't talk to us. It was really difficult for me, Pete, to experience what I experienced as a young kid walking into this powerful club to experience then towards the end what I had to, to go through. And it was really difficult. And maybe because of that, it wasn't the draft picks, but maybe the culture of the club hasn't changed for so many years. And there's still, as you can see, Pete, this has got a long way to go, which is really sad. And uh, I, I hope that they can turn it around because in my head... I remember how wonderful this club was. And uh, in the other part of my head, those last five years were really difficult to cope. And uh, as an older player, 
you know, when you're young, you don't care. You just want to play senior footy. But as an older player, I just wanted the club to succeed. I wanted the club to play finals. I wanted the club to go forward. I wanted the supporters uh, to see, you know, what we were all about. And these young supporters of the Carlton Football Club don't know, like you've seen them, Pete. And I've seen them too. Growing up, I was a Collingwood supporter. I hated when Carlton won. And they beat us every year. And then I went on to play for them. What a wonderful club. How prestigious. How successful. And uh, I don't think the young players have experienced or don't even know really what this club's all about. And hopefully they can change that soon. But it was really difficult, Pete. Um, and it's, uh, I guess when I look back at my career, I always tend to look at the fond memories of the 1990s, early 2000s, mm. the last five years of my career. Was part of the difficulty, the difficult relationship you had with Dennis Pagan? Look along with him, all right, Pete. He was good to talk to, not, not a problem. Uh, he, he was just set in his way. And, um, you know, was, his game plan was a little bit old-fashioned, but I'd never take away the fact that, he was successful with it, so it was really hard for him to change. And you know, I, mean, I watched him in the 19s when we played against him. He was hard and tough. They'd win every year. And then he was my Till Cup coach. I felt like he got the best out of me too, you know, the fear that I had for him, but no different to the coach I had under 19s. Then I watched him from afar win a premiership for the reserves in uh, Essendon. And then uh, he went on to coach the, the team of the decade in North Melbourne. But... His game plan never changes. The game evolved so quickly, keeping us off. We'd probably average 200, 220 possessions a game, while other teams are averaging maybe 400 feet. So we just couldn't keep up with what was going on out there, and our training methods were really old-fashioned. It turned back the clock to the early 90s, in my opinion. And after I had three of my you know, knee injuries and setbacks and everything, I didn't really need that sort of training for myself also. So I found it difficult, and, and I believe that even if we had the best players, we still would have struggled back in those times when the game changed. Uh, so much so definitely not I don't blame Dennis I mean Dennis was a hard worker he was passionate you know he got to the club early represented the club really well um, but unfortunately he just you know the time had surpassed him I guess when he came to the football club and, and that's the way it was and you spoke about that and you talked about the fact that you thought that his training methods were a bit outdated mm. did that fracture the relationship between you two I, I you know, throughout it, I couldn't really say too much, could I? I mean, he was a coach. I had to abide by him and just go out there and play the way he wanted us to play. And uh, that's why I know coaches make such a difference to a team. Now, if I didn't go through that, I probably would not have believed it. And even the culture of the club makes a massive difference to the way the, the players react on the field. You've got to have a happy environment, Pete, in my opinion. Because if you don't look forward to going to training, it's your life, you won't get the best out of yourself. And that's how I felt. And I'm sure other players felt that way as well. They just probably haven't come out and said anything. And I don't want to start dramas or anything. I'm, I'm way past it. But you ask me, and I've got to try to be as honest as I can. So you don't have a happy environment. You're not going to produce the best. And that's how we felt, you know. And I had when I captained the club, and it was an absolute honour for me to captain the club at the age of 31 to 33, um, because, you know, as I walked in as a 14-year-old, finally I'm captain now, but they have so many players come up to me and complain, but really when it's really hard to communicate with a coach, you're not going to really get too far. His training methods still to this day, I find it hard to believe the, the way that it was, but to his credit, man, he stood tall, he stood up, and he just did what he believed uh, was uh, was the right thing to do. And I know I can talk all I want. Pete, co- Pete coaching is certainly not an easy job so I've got to give him credit for all the success he, he, you know he's had in the past and I'm just one guy that has my belief in uh, then what was it what was occurring at that club and I just love the club Pete I really do and even now I feel like I owe the club my life because you know I walked in as a young kid I walked out I just had the greatest period of my life you know involved with that football club and I just want to see him successful such being the case Cooter did it hurt you when you wanted to go back there after your playing days 
And it seemed from the outside, and tell me if this is not right, but it seemed as though they didn't want you back there. Mm, I guess guess so. Peter, it's a hard one to answer because, you know, I don't really want to start (laughs) issues again. I don't want to talk about these Mm. sort of things. I'd rather get past it, but... um, it had to have know. hurt you, though. Yeah, I, I always try to stay loyal, you know, to the club. And uh, loyalty to me now, I'm not sure what it is anymore with football clubs because uh, if, you know, I was to go through it again, I would probably question some of the things. Um, but loyalty has been thrown out the door, in my opinion. Yeah, I was I was uh, happy to go back there at the end and even, you know, do it for nothing just to help out and give back to the club. But there was no nothing there. So... It was difficult because, you know, when I played, you know, everyone's like, yeah, oh, they're cuda, you know, they respect. And, mate, I just got treated very well. And then at the end, when you walk out those doors, it means nothing really. All those years that I put in as a kid, you know, as a 14-year-old kid all the way through, under-19s, reserves, and, you know, everything I did, I tried to do and represent the club the best that I could. And any time they wanted me to go out and promote them, I just went out of my way and did it, whereas other players wouldn't do it. And uh, I didn't have the luxury of going back there. And uh, in some ways, maybe lucky, Pete, because it's certainly not, uh, maybe an environment that I really, you know, would, would want to be involved with at the moment. But hopefully they can change things around. You know, Pete, like, I look back and the supporters and the support that I had from the supporters has just been unbelievable and uh, overwhelming. And even to this point in time, so many ask me why aren't I back there? And I just tell them the same old thing. I've repeated myself. I tried. And mm. if there's no door open there, I can't go and push it and try to open. I'm too embarrassed to do that. So I just sit back from afar and watch the guys in the, in the club perform. Part of the reason you love the footy club is because they threw their arms around you at a really difficult time of your life when you lost your dad. Mm. That was tough for you. The toughest period of my life, Pete, I always say, because it was tough when I retired in that period that the transition of uh, becoming a footballer and then into the business world was a difficult period for me too. And I spent a bit of time with you, which was great, Pete, yeah. and that's why, you know, I, I, it was great to catch up with you again. But to lose my father, at, uh, you know, I just turned 25. He was my my soulmate, I guess, my my best friend. And I always thought he'd be there forever. I, li- I was living at home. Then I used to drive mum and dad to the footy. And three months later, after he got diagnosed, he was gone. And so to drive to the footy was really eerie. It was uh, not a lot of discussion in the car. It was just unusual not to have him there and uh, have his support by my side. And so I did lose my weight. It was Parker. This is when our probably our bond and relationship and friendship came closer, that he was a great support, I'll be all on, in all honesty with you. Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell. Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell were my two greatest mentors. I'll, I'll go on recording continually saying that Barry gave me his time all the time. He's just such a smart footballer. Taught me things that other coaches didn't. Wayne Britton could see what the potential I had in me. He'd go out and put and go out of his way to train me and do a little bit extra and those two there helped me to then overcome the death of my father and find uh the best footy within myself. So by the, the second half of that ninety eight season where I really started to perform consistently better because that first half was terrible but it really was because I was out boozing all the time just with my mates just drinking didn't really care too much about footy and I, I got found out very very quickly and that's what you do in the football world I made a decision when Brits and, and Mitch spoke to me that I was going to train harder than I ever did before I promised my father and so I couldn't turn back when I promised my father because I'd feel like I was a liar so I went out there and trained harder than I ever did before, and hence the reason why I had the 99, 2000, 2001 were the three greatest years of my career. Still lots to talk about, but not much time to do it. So we're going to take our final break, and we'll come back with our last segment with Anthony Kudafidis on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. We'll wrap things up with Kuda after the break. Yeah! 
You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment with the great Cooter on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Cooter, you mentioned we spent a bit of time together. We were on the desk doing a program called Big Pond Sports Weekend yeah. for a couple of years. Had a great time, but I've still got a bone to pick with oh, you. What is it? Uh, you said about being a Collingwood supporter. You probably don't remember this, but we had a bet one day that uh, when Collingwood played Carlton, whoever lost had to wear the opposition Guernsey. And Carlton won. And you brought into the studio the bloody smallest Guernsey you could find. I had to do the show holding my breath for 27 <laughs> minutes. I don't remember that, Pete. Yeah, I do. And I'm going to look back on that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you would have loved it, mate. We no, I did you. not. We would have converted you. No, I had then. to wear a Carlton Jabber, and I felt like I was <laughs> needing to go home and have a shower afterwards. But anyway, we digress. Um, that was fun, um, sitting on the desk with you. We had some good yeah, times there. Yeah, it was a little bit of the media stuff that I did at the end of my career, and I loved working with you because you were so easy to work with, and some other people personalities you work with that don't let you even talk but you were fantastic that was a lot of fun yeah well you talked about the world team you made the I think the Greek and Italian team of the century was it yeah I did I think the multicultural one also and because and, my father was born in Egypt so I, I, yeah. if there was an Egyptian one we'd probably be in that one too but we probably haven't got enough players but yes yeah, so I'm very fortunate that the two cultures of the Greek and Italian I grew up in a remarkable time Pete to have a father a Greek father and the Italian mum I had no idea Mum cooked all the time. You know, there was always plenty of food and uh, the European way of life. I thought it was the only way of living. But now as I've gotten older, I realise that I think I got a little bit spoiled by mum when she did everything for me. She'd even iron my training tops, <laughs> underwear. She just went over the top. <laughs> and while the boys turned up with crinkled T-shirts, mum always made sure that my tops were ironed. And, oh, God. Uh, you know, that's that was, what mums do, mate. Uh, that's what happens, yeah, European mums. Yeah. It was good fun. And the good thing was that if she didn't do it, uh, Ange Christie probably would have done it for you because no. you two had this bromance that went on for how many years? It probably still goes on. It to this still day. goes on, yeah. Ange. I love it. How Ange. is he? He's very good, Ange. He's, uh, he's runs his own business called Home Security. That means he does nothing, Pete. So he's still not working. He's never worked a day of his life after footy. Didn't you have a souvlaki hut with him at yeah, one oh, stage? Yeah, actually, yeah, he worked there. You're right, actually. But he worked there, but sort of didn't too. He wasn't there that often at what he should have been. But right. yeah, we did have it, and uh, no longer, thank God for that. And uh, <laughs> but we're still. Good mates, Ange, and uh, his mum did. He would Ange's mum did more for him than what my mum did for him. He was more sport than what I was, Ange. But he's a good boy. He's finally got married two years ago to to a beautiful Greek girl now, and uh, he's happy with life. I, I'm still playing over 35s footy with him, Pete. That's why I was limping around right here. Eh? Uh, we played two days ago, and you know we got Heath Scotland, Campbell Brown, and. Um, Ben Johnson and Corey McKernan's our coach. We've got a pretty good lineup there. So hopefully we can go on and win a premiership. We're still early. We're not going to call that just yet. But yeah, still catch up with Andrew. He's a, he's a great mate. And we've been through so many great, wonderful times together and overseas trips and things like that. So I'm lucky I had a good mate also. And I probably didn't thank him enough actually throughout my talk to have Ange by my side too. So even through difficult periods of my father and, and everything and even footy, Ange was always there. A guy that you know, inspired me. We battled with one-on-one out in the footy track. We are very competitive, everything that we did together, and we probably got the best out of each other. Well, it's been magnificent to relive some of those glory days with you. It was uh, such a pleasure to work with you as um, we talked about our time together. Not only are you a champion footballer, and we saw that throughout your career, but uh, a champion bloke as well. It's been good to catch up with you, Cooter. Likewise, Pete. You're a champion bloke too, and everything you do, I always watch you, so don't worry about that. Thanks, good on mate. you, mate. Anthony Cooter, our 
our special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll be back with another edition of the program same time next week here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.